Well, happy Sunday. Great to worship with you guys this morning. And speaking of worship, when I was in college, uh, I was part of a really large church at the time, and I was playing in the band. Uh, one Sunday, I was playing keys, and there was a stage that was kind of like this, but bigger. And there was, on both sides of, this, of the angle of the stage, there were steps, about five or six steps to get on the stage. And so I was playing keys that Sunday. The keyboard was kind of probably in the same area. And this church, I mean, I'm, I'm all for all forms and expressions of worship, and different churches do it differently. So this church was, you know, you, you could do this thing. You know, you could do the, the, the widescreen TV. If you're really feeling it, maybe hold the baby. You know, maybe pick me, coach. And if you're really into it, the touchdown, you know. And so that's, that's about it, though. That's about the ex as expressive as you would get. And so this particular Sunday, I will never forget it. We're playing this song. I'm playing the keys. There's a stairs right there. And this guy kind of sitting right there in the front row is getting it. And by getting it, I mean literally mosh pit style going after it, which again, if that's what you want to do, do it. It's just that when you're the only one doing it, everybody will be staring at you. And so we're playing this song and I'm kidding you not. He's, he's literally doing this thing. He's like worshiping and like going in circles. And I'm like, okay, that's like, that's your thing. That's fine. But as he is spinning and like doing these 360 McTwist flips, he's getting closer and closer to the stage. And so I'm playing and I'm just like, like, is there a security going to happen? Like, is he going to fall? And like, he's just going at it. And everyone's staring at him, whatever. And then as soon as the song is done, he just goes to his seat and sits down. Like, it was nothing. Like, it was just, that's just what you do. Now, again, nothing wrong with that. But in that setting, everybody who was there and saw, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm bad with these numbers, probably about a thousand seat auditorium. I mean, everybody was like, what just happened? And had an opinion. Like, you could not watch that and just be like, eh. You'd be like, that was weird, or that was awesome, or what's going on, or is there, are we doing some exorcism? Like, what's, you would have an opinion over what you just saw, good, bad, or otherwise. You couldn't just see that and be like, no big deal. And today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we are going to see Jesus do something that everybody who saw it would have an opinion over what they saw. You could not see what he had done or what he is going to do this morning and think, no big deal. It would, re, it would evoke a response to you. And so today, as we continue in the Gospel of Mark, we'll be in Mark chapter 11, and you can go ahead and turn there if you want to use one of those black Bibles, page 899, and you can certainly take one of those home if you do not own a Bible. It is our gift to you. And today, as we continue in the Gospel of Mark, and we read this passage about what Jesus is going to do, it's an invitation for you and for me to stop and consider who this man named Jesus actually is. Because what he is going to do today is not going to leave room for someone to be neutral. It's going to invoke a response to you. And so last week we began what is known as Passion Week. So Jesus is arriving into Jerusalem. This is the final week of his life leading up to his resurrection that's going to come in just a couple of days. Uh, last week it was kind of anticlimactic. He comes into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, he looks around, and then he leaves for the night. And we're wondering what's going to happen next. And so here's what it says. Mark chapter 11, verse 12, it says this. It says, The next day they, which is Jesus and his disciples, went out from Bethany. He was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went out to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So this is the next day. This is a Monday morning. They're walking back into Jerusalem. They're staying in Bethany during this week. It's about a two-mile journey from Bethany to the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, he 
he's hungry. He sees a fig tree. He sees that there's leaves on the fig tree. And so he goes up to it. He curses it because there is nothing to eat. It seems kind of strange to do so because Mark even tells us it's not the season for figs. So that's kind of confusing. Or maybe it's just flat out wrong. Like, why would he curse something that is not necessarily doing anything wrong? Now, just to set this up so you and I can be on the same page in case you are not a figologist with this morning, I honestly don't know if that's a thing, but that's what I'm going with. If you don't know anything about figs, I certainly don't know anything about figs. Here's what's happening. Uh, the main fig harvest, particularly in this part of the world, uh, was, is mid-August to mid-October every year. That is when the figs are most ripe. That's when people would, would take and eat them at the most, uh, most amount of time. Uh, this story, however, takes place in the spring. Passover is just a few days Away, And so technically, it's not the main harvesting season for figs. However, uh, figs, they would still sprout leaves even in the winter months, even in the non-big you know, big harvesting months. And when a fig tree sprouts leaves, that means there are supposed to be these little knops or these, these little nodules which accompanied the leaf on the branches. And so while they are not fully ripened and probably why they are not as good as maybe a fully ripened fig, you can still eat them if you are hungry. And so Jesus sees this tree. Of course, he's from this area. He knows it's out of season, but he sees a fig tree with leaves on it. And so he would probably rightly assume that there is something on it to eat. In fact, for a fig tree to have leaves, but not to have any of these knops or these nodules to pick from, could probably most likely mean that the tree was either diseased or decayed, that there was something wrong with the tree that is not producing any of, these, any of this fruit. Now, that being said, uh, we don't know the actual condition of the tree, but this is probably why Jesus could have still expected something on the tree, even if it would have been small. And so regardless, however, he curses the tree. The disciples hear and see that he curses the tree. But the question is why? Well, Mark doesn't tell us yet. Instead, he continues the story, and he says this in Mark chapter 11, verses 15. It says this, says, they came to Jerusalem, so Jesus and his disciples keep walking on the way, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. So Jesus here, again, he gets to the temple of Jerusalem, and he is upset with what is going on. Now, again, just like you may not be a figologist, you probably maybe not have a good idea of what the temple looked like. And so here's a picture. I just want to explain for you for just a second what's going on here and explain this so you can maybe get a better understanding of what Jesus is doing in this situation. So I'll try to do this pretty quickly. On the left of the screen, there's this, that, that red archway. That's what was known as the Royal Stoa. It was a really big colonnade where a lot of things were going on. Um, then you would have like the temple area in the middle. You can see the big temple covered with uh, some walls around it. Outside of the smaller temple area is a massive courtyard. Uh, that became known as the Court of Gentiles because a portion of this courtyard is where everybody was allowed to go. So if you were a Jew, which you were um, unclean for whatever reason, or you were a Gentile, which means you were not Jewish, you were allowed in part of the courtyard area of this temple. Now, the whole courtyard, just to give you some size of how big this is, is about 36 acres is how big the temple was. Um, it was 500 yards long, five football fields long, and 325 yards wide, so about three football fields wide. These columns were 30 feet tall, and it was massive. Now, uh, you can't... this. 
this re uh, depiction of it doesn't have the little, there's a, there was a smaller outer wall outside of the temple area in, inside the courtyard that's not on this uh, rendition of it. And there was, and it was pretty much like a gate saying that if you're not Jewish, you cannot enter. In fact, all around this wall in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, which were the main languages of the time, it essentially had inscribed all around it something to the effect of this, that no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surrounded the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. So they were very serious about this. In fact, it was such a big deal that even in the Roman Empire, who was in charge of this area, they also respected it and did not go inside these smaller temple walls. Now, here's where the debate is going on. The debate is, where is all this money changing and the animals being sold for sacrifices going on? Now, we know it would have been happening for sure outside of the temple. There would have been lenders and money changers and people selling animals for sacrifice. Uh, we know it also happened inside the temple, certainly in the Red uh, Royal Stoa area. And, and, but what also seems to be going on and what likely is what's causing Jesus to be so frustrated is that these, this changing and this exchanging of funds, these selling of animals was likely spilling over into the court of Gentiles. In other words, the only place you could go if you were not Jewish in the temple, the temple to worship and to pray towards God is now being overrun with money changers and lenders and people selling animals. Now, that being said, just to be clear, the problem is not that money exchanging and animal sacrifices and salt and oil, the various things that you would need for your sacrifices, the problem is not that that happened. That would have to happen, right? You couldn't pack your minivan and drive to Jerusalem to do your sacrifices. Like you had to walk. In fact, even if you could pack your minivan, I don't think you would want Larry the goat in your minivan, right? And so it was a normal thing to go to the temple area, go to Jerusalem, uh, pay the temple tax, uh, get the animals and the things you needed for your sacrifice so that you could do it. That was not the problem. The problem is where it was going on. And so Jesus sees this, and we're going to see in a second, gets extremely frustrated. Now, to be fair as well, it's unlikely that Jesus stopped the entire operation because it was so massive in scale and scope. But certainly, like the friend I talked about dancing during the worship music, if you were in the area where he was, you certainly would have saw what he was doing and been entirely shocked, entirely surprised because this is not something somebody does. People do not try to in interrupt and disrupt the sacrificial system. What he is doing here would have certainly caused a lot of interest, if not anger, among people about what he was doing. And so he's really angry. He's overturning tables. He's not permitting people to carry goods, which likely means he might be near the entrance of the barrier where people would take their sacrifices, where he's probably trying to stop it. And here's the problem. He says this in verse 17 of uh, Mark chapter 11. So he's doing all this, and then it says he was teaching them. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, what's interesting about what is going on here is one of the popular understandings or assumptions about the Messiah when he was going to come is that he was going to purge the temple area of Gentiles and foreigners, of non-Jews, that he is going to cleanse them out, get them out of, the, out of the way so that the Jews can have their own thing, that they would be safe to do whatever they wanted to do. And yet Jesus here is doing the opposite of that. His frustration is that the Gentiles and the foreigners and those who seem like they are outside of God's love and grace, they are being prohibited from honoring and worshiping God. And so he is upset with that. 
In fact, what he's actually saying is that what is, what is happening here is that he's impeding the temple where the Gentiles can pray. In other words, he's not trying to get them to leave. He's trying to make space for them, and he's frustrated that it is not happening the way that it is supposed to happen. In other words, in all of the craziness of, of the animal stock market and going around and the outer courts and the inner courts and the hustle and bustle of all of it, the Gentiles, again, can't go to the one area of the temple that they're supposed to be allowed to go to worship and pray. And so he is upset with that. And then this is actually a quote in verse 17 when he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And Isaiah chapter 56 was all about the extension of God's salvation to people formerly outside of the covenant, where the old prophet Isaiah was prophesying how one day God's salvation would be for all people, which means Gentiles, which means foreigners, which means people who seem like they are outside, he is going to make a way for everyone to experience his grace and forgiveness. But what has happened is instead of the temple being a place where foreigners can experience God's love and grace, it had become essentially a national shrine for the Jews. They had kind of propped it up for themselves, like, look at this amazing thing that we have, and it is not being a light to the nations like it was supposed to be. Which is why in Isaiah 56, verse 6, it talks about how anyone is supposed to be able to worship the Lord. And Jesus is here to fulfill that prophecy. To make it possible, no matter who you are, where you live, what you look like, what's happened to you, what you have done, that you can experience God. Or put another way, here's what Mark was showing us in this text. That Jesus came for all people. Jesus came for all people, not just the people that you and I think might deserve it. Now, here's what's interesting with what's going on here. From us and our 21st century uh, mindset and our cultural understanding, we actually like what Jesus is doing here. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's essentially breaking an ethnic barrier. The Jews are allowed to be here and the non-Jews are not allowed to be here. And while it's true that all of us have either unconscious and sometimes conscious biases towards people that look different than us, we would all agree that your ethnicity should not prohibit you from experiencing life and freedom and safety and all these things, right? And so we like what Jesus is doing here because he's essentially saying it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, you are welcome here. And so the question for you and for me then is to ask ourselves if Jesus is here today, who are some of the outsiders that if we are not careful, we can label as less than? Or we can say, before you're allowed here, you must act a certain way, do a certain thing differently, and then you can come. Right? For us, perhaps it's people in the LGBTQ community. That, yeah, we would say God loves all people, but if you're going to do that, you need to stop before God will love you. Perhaps politically, a political divide. Now, one of the things I love about New City is we have people on all sides of the aisle, which I think is great because what that means is that we have found someone greater, which is Jesus, to unite us. But I even think of the last election cycle where you had very prominent Christian leaders, not many, but you had some who said things like, if you vote like a Democrat or if you vote for Democrats, you're not a Christian. And so we can say a Democrat or a Republican is an outsider. Or we might think people on welfare or government assistance, right? If they would just work harder, uh, if they would just spend their money better, then they wouldn't have to leech off the rest of us. So they need to get their lives together, and then they can come. Or maybe we think of people who had an abortion, or people who got divorced, or how about this? People who sin in public, the same sins that we just do in private. And so we can judge them while continuing to walk in our own sin. 
Really, any, this way, anytime you or I use they or those people to talk about a different group of people kind of shows us that we somehow think we are better than them. And what I think what Jesus would say to us today is that whether you are any of these things or any other thing that I did not mention more than anything else, you need to know this morning that you are loved right where you are. And one of my hopes for New City is that we can be and that we can continue to be a place where a whole bunch of broken people can experience the grace of Jesus in their life. That's my hope for us. And that we would not let our convictions hear me, even if they are true, even if you and I have right and good convictions, prohibit people from experiencing Jesus and his grace. That doesn't mean we don't talk to one another. It doesn't mean we don't hold each other accountable, but that our first mindset would not be stop, fix yourself before you come in, but you come in and let Jesus and his spirit do the work in your life. Because I think that's what Jesus would say to us. It's essentially what he's doing here. And so then he says this, that this temple, again, he calls it a den of thieves. So instead of being a place where people are supposed to be welcome into God's kingdom, uh, they're junk and all. It's now turned into a den of thieves. Now, this was also a quote taken from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And in Jeremiah chapter 7, this was a prophet of old when they were rebuilding the temple the second time, which is the temple that Jesus now finds himself in, where he denounced the temple, Jeremiah at his time, was denouncing the temple and the religious leaders uh, running it, which we'll see more why in the next week. Uh, but he, the problem here is that in, in Jeremiah chapter 7, just like now in ancient Israel, uh, the people had sullied the temple worship. Again, that they had turned it into something that it wasn't supposed to be. And so by Jesus saying this, it's as if he is really indirectly but directly attacking the religious leaders for allowing them to turn the temple into something or to a, a place rather that people can go through the motions without actually honoring God with their life. That you can perform, and in many cases, profit off of the people coming to offer sacrifices, but what does it matter if you're not actually going to create spaces where people can experience me? That you have created a den for yourself to feel safe when you're not actually honoring me in your lives at all. Which means the question for us is also this as we read this text is where do you and I hide from God? Where do you and I go and do things to make ourselves feel better even if we're not honoring him in other parts of our life? Now for us today, we don't go to a temple. We don't have the temple. That temple no longer exists. It was destroyed in 70 AD. But we have our own little temples Right, our own little places where we go to do things to ease our consciousness, to cover up doing things that we know we might not, should not be doing. Maybe it's going to church. Maybe it's giving money. Maybe it's, I don't do these certain things to make it okay that I do these certain things. And what God, what Jesus is showing here, us here is that he is not impressed, right? God is not impressed when we go through the motions to pretend like we're good, knowing full well we are intentionally having other places in our life that we are not honoring him and that we are not turning to him. That these religious leaders can say, look at this massive operation we are running, but we're running it with not the right intentions. To look good, to have authority, to make a profit, but not doing this in a ways that people and ourselves can actually experience him. And so the, the religious leaders, again, know they're being attacked by Jesus because they respond by saying this in verse 18. It says this, the, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. So they see what's going on. They want to kill him for they were afraid of him 
because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. So each night of that week, Jesus and his disciples would leave out of Jerusalem. So what's happening here is that just as the disciples had seen and heard Jesus curse a fig tree, now these religious authorities had heard and saw what Jesus was doing in the temple, and they are startled, and of course they are angry because he is stopping what's going on here. And also Passover is only a couple of days away, so there's a big influx of people. This is not the time to cause to throw a wrench in the operation. And so what do they want to do? They want to find a way to kill him, which is what they've been wanting to do for the last couple of years. Again, the problem, however, is that Jesus had become quite popular. Uh, he had healed, taught, and a lot of things for a lot of people. And so a lot of people liked him. And so they have to find a way to legally arrest him. Otherwise, they're going to find a riot and a problem on their hands, especially with Passover coming. The, the assumption is whenever Passover does come, or rather, whenever the Messiah does come, he's going to make his grand entrance during Passover week. And so you have people assuming, you have the murmurs of, is this Jesus guy, the one who's going to, by force, redeem us and help us break away from the Roman Empire? And so they're going to arrest him. They've got to do it in a way that's going to be legal and look legit so that they don't have an even bigger problem on their hands. But again, the problem here is that everybody is astonished by what they see. Now, to be fair to the text, the, the word that we have translated here is astonished. In Greek, it, it's not necessarily a positive thing. So it could be a positive thing, or it could be they were just startled, or they were baffled, or they were speechless over what they saw. And again, Jesus leaves for the night. But if you saw what was happening here and you saw the commotion and you see Jesus teaching and you see him flipping and doing things that nobody ever did in the temple, you would immediately have an opinion on what's happening. You would either agree or you would disagree or you would be angry or you would be like, good, they got what's coming to them. Or if you were someone who was profiting off of this, you would not be happy. Everybody would have an immediate opinion. Right? Like, just to give you an example, like there are things where if somebody even says it, you immediately have an opinion. So like to get us in this mindset, I'm going to need some participation here. So, don't, so be bold if I ask you to raise your hand. For example, if you would say that pineapple on pizza is an okay thing, just raise your hand, some of you. A lot of you, wow, okay. I thought people were like, no. But some of you are like, that's great. And others are like, no way, right? Or how about this? Maybe this one's a little bit more controversial. If you would say a hot dog is a sandwich, raise your hand. Okay, less of you, good, good. Now, the rest of you, like, can't believe, uh, hot dog is not a sandwich, and here's just why, because if I told you I was getting sandwiches for lunch and I brought you a hot dog, even if you just rose your hand, you'd be like, I thought you were bringing me sandwiches, right? So we have a, you have an opinion. Amen. Amen, right? How about this one? <clears throat> How about this one? We, we got a good mixture of people from the north and the south here at New City Church. Um, if, raise your hand and be bold. If you think barbecue is the same thing as a cookout, raise your hand. If those are synonymous words, you're like, yeah, there's more of you. Okay, guys, this is not a dinner thesis, this is a house of prayer for all nations, okay? Um, in the South, just so you know, a bar barbecue is not a verb, it's a noun. Barbecue is something that you eat, typically involving a pig, right? Cook, uh, hamburger and hot dogs is a cookout. That is not a barbecue, okay? Those are two separate things all together, right? We have an response, right? I don't know if we'll clap for Jesus, but we'll clap for barbecue. So I don't know what that says about us, but okay. Um, how about this one? We'll end with this one. This one, this might be get us all on the same page. Even if you respect why they don't do it, if you wish Chick-fil-A open on Sundays, go ahead and raise your hand. 
That's, oh, you're lying in church. All of your hands should be up. I know what you're saying, right? Now, all of that to say, here's what's happening here, right? That Jesus uh, it provokes a response. Jesus provokes a response. That you can't see what Jesus is saying, see what Jesus is doing, and be like, nah, not a big deal. You would see this. Now, you really have one of two options. You're either threatened or you're defensive, or it can cause you to worship. He is, as in his own words, the way, the truth, and the life, or he's not. He is one of those two things. Either I have to submit myself and follow him as he claimed to be God and did for me what I could not do for myself and give him my life, or I can reject him and go my own way. Listen, the only way that you can be neutral towards Jesus if you don't, is if you don't actually know who Jesus is and what he said about himself. And if that's you, we're glad you're here. That is totally okay. But when you come face to face with his claims, with his uh, claims to authority to, to say that he actually can forgive sins, as he were going to say here, that he can overthrow the entire temple, either he can do that because he's God or he is a liar to be rejected. But you have to do something with Jesus. And so do they. And we're going to see over these next couple of weeks their response to it. And so he causes this massive scene and then he leaves and it says this in verse 20 of Mark chapter 11. It says, early in the morning, this would have been a Tuesday morning, the next day, as they were passing by, so they're heading back into Jerusalem and back towards the temple, they, Jesus and his disciples, saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered, Peter being one of Jesus' disciples, and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Right, So the next day, they're walking by this fig tree that is now completely withered and completely died, and he wants to know what's going on. Or he wants to say, hey, this is happening. Like, Just bring your attention. Like, it did what you said. It's completely gone. Now, again, for us, it's worth knowing that the fig trees in the Old Testament were often used to describe Israel's faithfulness or maybe lack thereof. The question is, why is this temple scene sandwiched by the fig tree? Because Mark is trying to show us something about the lack of faithfulness of God's people. So, for example, in the prophet Jeremiah, in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, uh, Israel is compared to a fruitless fig tree when they were being unfaithful. Or in the Old Testament book of Micah, he says that Israel's lack of faithful people is like failing to find early figs on a fig tree. And, of course, what is Jesus doing here? He is failing to find early figs on a fig tree. Right? It is quite, quite clear what is happening here is that Jesus is using the fig tree to represent Israel and what the temple has become. From a distance, it looks fine. It has leaves, but upon a closer inspection, it is fruitless. It is faithless, regardless about how it looks from the distance. And then this is Jesus' response. It's kind of an interesting response to Peter. He says this in verse 22. It says, Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. So uh, lifting up a mountain and throwing it to the sea was just a cultural expression that God can do the impossible. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe what you have received and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if anyone has anything against anyone... 
Forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. And so Jesus here responds to his disciples by telling them to have faith in God, which seems kind of interesting. Like, why did you kill this fig tree? Well, have faith in God. Now, what does faith in God have to do with a fig tree? Well, again, what's likely happening here is they, the disciples, and us as readers are being encouraged to trust in God and to allow him to remove anything that is fruitless or unfaithful in our life if it doesn't bear fruit. Because here's the thing, God delights to answer our prayers, and he can answer your prayers, but it also doesn't mean it's going to answer them in the way that you Want. For example, even a couple of chapters later, on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed in Mark chapter 14, he literally prays, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, right? This impending wrath that I'm going to experience. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That even when we pray, we pray according to God's will and we trust him if things don't go the way that we want. And of course, we must forgive others as God has forgiven us, that we should not withhold from others what God has so graciously given us, which is forgiveness through Jesus. Now, all that to say, here's what we see in this passage of the fig tree and the cursing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, rather, and the overthrowing of the temple. What we see here is, again, what Jesus does to this fig tree is corresponding to temple worship. That Jesus here is not interested in a dead faith or a performative faith, but one that offers life to anyone who would trust him. Or put another way, here's what we see happening here, that Jesus cuts off what is dead to make room for what is living. He cuts off what is dead to make room for what is living. He's not trying to just fix a broken piece. He's trying to replace it altogether. What this makes me think of is years ago when I used to work at Verizon, and people would come in, in the retail store, and uh, they would be mad a lot when something about their phone broke. Right? And I get like being frustrated, but one of the fun things of our jobs was when people were, were mad, and they were like mad at us. And it's like, bro, you broke it. You lost it. You dropped it. Like, I get, like, it ain't my fault. And so one of the things that was so fascinating to me is all the time, all the time, people would walk into Verizon with their smartphones in a rice bag, like in a bag of rice. And um, I get it, but I don't. I guess like rice will like, you know, takes moisture out. But here's the thing. It never worked. And I'm like, why do we do this? My guess is maybe like the flip phones, the basic phones, maybe it worked for, for those better. And then we got smartphones and people thought they would still work. And so now, you know, they make smartphones water resistant. So like you can drop them quickly, whatever. But, you know, for a while there, if you drop it even for a second, it's done. And so we were bringing the rice bags and they want to fix it. And they'd be mad that we could. And in fact, I'll never forget one day this lady walks in. She's upset. She says, my phone doesn't work. And just like throws it in my face, like puts it in my face. And so I take it and I said... Okay, ma'am, what's the problem? She said, I dropped it in the toilet. Like, okay, well, I think, I think that's the problem, right? They wanted us to like fix and resuscitate this thing that was completely dead, and there is no fixing it. Well, Jesus isn't, isn't, isn't interested in trying to do this patchwork thing on your life or my life to kind of move us across the finish line. He's trying to fix and remove what is dead so that you and I might experience life. And so the question for you and for me this morning is, what do you need to lay down in your life instead of trying to fix? What is it that you're trying to do better, to work harder, to keep a secret, thinking if I can just get control of this, then everything will be fine, when Jesus instead is inviting you to just lay it down altogether so that he can give you life? What is your fig tree that you are experiencing right now?
And for some of you, maybe today you do not yet know Jesus. And your fig tree is just your entire life that you've been striving and trying. And it's been hard. And you've got these doubts and these questions. And you've got this feeling, this sense of shame or this sense of worthlessness. And Jesus is saying, oh, my love is sufficient. My grace is sufficient that I am coming, coming to give my life for you. And so instead of you trying really hard, you need to trust and repent and follow me and allow me to, to wash over all of your brokenness and all of your shame. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus and you've got an addiction that you've been hiding or you've got a marriage that's falling apart or you've been saying, I'm going to try this one more time and if I can't do it, then I'll get help, but then you never actually get help. What is it that you need to, instead of trying to fix, just need to lay it before the Lord and ask him to kill it so that he can give you life? What is the spirit leading in and confiding in and convicting you of this morning that instead of trying to fix or instead of trying to limp along, he's saying, give it to me. Because Jesus has come to cut off what is dead, to make room for what is living. And he wants to invite us to experience that through 